This is Ashley Stone, and you're listening to The Comeback Podcast. So, Missy, so excited to have you on the podcast. It's always fun when somebody, like, recommends somebody else's story that they know. And your brother reached out, and he suggested that you be on the podcast. He's a he's a listener. And so... Yeah, I'm I'm excited. So if you want to give us a little bit of context, if you have like tell us a little bit about you, your family, maybe what you do for work, if you work and let's start with some context and then we'll jump into your story. Sure, yeah. I'm actually a single mother. I have been single for oof, 8 years now. Um I have four sons. Stay pretty busy with that. Although two of my two of my boys are older, so they've moved out. One of them is married. He just got married this past year. So for the last five years, I've actually uh, been an executive at an at a company called Millennia. We do patient billing. We're we're a white label patient billing service for hospitals and physicians networks. Um, however, that company just went through a restructure uh, last month, and so as of last month, I have actually been looking for a job um, for the first time in my adult life. The story that I'm that will tell and kind of how this all has transpired. I'm very glad I'm in the place that I'm at right now. You know, when you have something like this happen in your life, but you know. It's been very recent and I'm well taken care of. So I'm not too worried about it right now. So um, that's a little bit about me at the, I guess at present day. Awesome. Well, shout out to anybody that's hiring right now. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> looking for a job. SVP client success. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah. Well, let's go ahead and jump into your story. We can start from the beginning. I'll start kind of at the beginning. I feel like I could literally probably talk to you for six hours and still have stories to tell about kind of where I've been and the parts of my life that have led me to where I am now, but I will not. So I'll try to keep some of the highlights and some of like the main pivotal moments that that happened. I think it starts off pretty similar to a lot of people where I just, I wanted to be cool in high school, right? I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be a part of that crowd that that everybody wanted to be a part of. And they accepted me, but part of being in that crowd was doing the things that they did. And and so I found myself trying cigarettes for the first time when I was 14. It didn't seem like a big deal. It was just like this little innocent thing. Um, I still was going to church and I was still obviously my family, very strong LDS family, very gospel focused and centered. My dad's been a bishop numerous times in my life, things like that. So core foundation was was really, really strong. And so it didn't seem like that big of a deal. Um, in fact, it was liberating in some ways, you know, because I was told my whole life, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. And I'm definitely not a person who likes to be told what I can and can't do, right? I've learned that about myself. You know, it started off there with just like some cigarettes and things like that. You know, progressively through high school, um, obviously got into drinking by 15. I was drinking Zimas. I don't know if anyone's old enough to remember Zima. And so that was the first time I ever drank. By the time I was 17, I was doing marijuana daily. I mean, definitely daily. I started actually selling it. So I worked at Arby's, which was my first job in high school. And a lot of the kids from my high school worked there. It was like almost like the cool place to work. Right. And so um, I actually, at a certain point was putting bags of marijuana in drive-through bags and handing them out the window when I was working the drive-through sometimes. So I was doing that pretty consistently to the point that I, somebody got caught with some of the marijuana that I had sold them and they gave the police my name. And I was at my parents' house still, obviously, and my parents, the police came there and they're talking to me about selling drugs, you know, in their house. And my parents were just, you know, beside themselves. I'm 17 years old. I'm still in high school. The person that I bought the drugs from called and like gave a death threat to me, you know, like if I were to give their name, you know, and this is marijuana. I mean, this was, you know, this was not like big, massive stuff. It was just so much drama. And obviously, you know. My parents didn't know how to deal with me. They didn't, they didn't know what to do. My parents, you know, at that point, they weren't drinking caffeine. Like they had just lived these wholesome lives and they had no idea what to do with where I was at. And I certainly wanted nothing to do with them or what they were saying at that point. And so I decided to move out and I got my own apartment with a friend. Um, You know, we were very young. I was still 17. That lasted a very short period of time because all anybody would do would be to come to our apartment to drink and whatever my belongings got thrashed people you know i mean just 
just the nastiest things and people urinating wherever they want when they're drink when they're drunk and just high school kids nonstop being drunk. We got the police called on us. It was a horrible situation. You know, found myself back at, at my parents' house, kind of tail between my legs, you know, like a, I, I wasn't ready for this or whatever. And my parents, you know, didn't turn me away. I skipped a part two and I apologize, but I actually, so I graduated early. Um, I went to Brigham Young University on an academic scholarship. Um, so I got a full ride, all, you know, all of my, not my room and board, but all of my, you know, my classes and stuff were paid for with the presidential scholarship because of my test scores. And because I graduated number seven in my class, um, I was so high <laughs> When I graduated, I don't remember walking across the stage. You can see the pictures of my graduation night and you can tell now how just, I mean, my eyes were, it was like I was a demon. They were so red. I just have, a, you know, I was blessed to be, you know, somewhat intelligent and comprehend things pretty well. So um, I went to Brigham Young University for a semester and I squandered the whole thing. I just, I didn't go to classes. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I did have a core group of friends that I'm still actually friends with to this day, uh, a handful of them that would walk with me off campus to smoke so I could smoke my cigarettes, so I could get high, so I could do those things. And they'd walk back with me because they didn't want me to do it alone. Got called into the bishop's office countless times for reports of like violations of the honor code and the, the code. And so I lasted one semester. Then I went back. And again, I was very young. I was still 17 when I was at BYU. And so that's when I decided to get out on my own and I was ready for life and I, I knew what I was doing and I, you know, all of those things. So after the failed attempt at, at, at getting the apartment, obviously things just progressively got worse. I was in, I was doing ecstasy at that point, acid. I started selling acid as well. Things didn't get better, right, for me. Um, and so I ended up eventually, you know, moving out again um, of my parents' home, thinking that I knew better than them, thinking that I could do better. I didn't want to have to go to church. I didn't want to have to do any of those things. My life was exactly what you would imagine at that point. You know, I had become a teenage, you know, 18. I'm an adult. I started getting tattoos. I mean, literally on my 18th birthday, I got my first tattoo. Started, you know, just everything that you can think of. I was a textbook. Like I was the stereotypical this is, you know, this is kind of my life and, and what I'm doing. When they say that those types of drugs and those things are gateway drugs, you know, you kind of laugh it off. And I know that you've had your own kind of experience. I watched, you know, your, your episode. So I don't know if it started that way for you, but you know, I, for years, I was very content to just get drunk, get high and do, and drop acid every now and then for years. I, you know, that's kind of my MO and that's kind of where I lived. And that was my life. Well, in that time, I got married. I, you know, I met somebody, same, same lifestyle, same everything. Um, we got married. I had my first two sons, uh, my two oldest boys. We were still partying a ton, he and I together. Um, but also, I was a waitress at that point in time. So, you know, married life, um, I was a waitress. And I met someone at work that I thought was cooler than my husband, that I got along with better than my husband. I mean, it wasn't a great relationship. Obviously, it was based off of, you know being high together and, and whatnot. Um, and so I, you know, I did have an, an affair. I did, you know, I did start having a relationship with somebody from work and he found out my, my ex-husband found out about it and obviously filed for divorce. You know, again, I'm giving you big, you know, glimpses of things in, 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 in short moments here. These are over the span of three years, this all happened. He filed for divorce and I was beside myself because that was never going to happen, right? Like I could just keep doing everything that I was doing and nothing bad was ever going to happen. There weren't consequences. And so I called my parents and my dad, who's one of the most amazing men that, I, that anyone could ever know, he said, just be honest, tell the truth, tell the truth. You know, just, you got to be a good person here. You, you got to, you got to accept the consequences. You need to tell the truth. You need to tell the truth. And so the truth was, I had been doing all these things, but nine out of 10 times I was doing them with my husband and he was there doing the drugs with me in the house with the kids, you know, all of the things that he was accusing me of kind of being this bad mother and, and, and whatnot. Um, he was there with me most of the time. The only difference was, you know, I had admitted to this um, extramarital affair. And so we went to court, my parents, you know, paid for the attorney and, and did all these things to try to help me and just told me to tell the truth. And I did. And my ex-husband did not. And he was the shiny guy that was doing no wrong and this great, wonderful, attentive father while I was just a degenerate. And he got my kids and he was awarded 
primary custody of my kids. Um, we did have a joint legal custody situation, but I only had visitation nights. You know, I'm sure anyone that's been through divorce probably can understand kind of how that all works in the court system. So I had a joint legal situation, which didn't mean a ton, but he had the primary care and, you know, got to make those final decisions. And I was so resentful. I, I was, I was so mad. Like, I did what the guy I'm not making all the best decisions in my life, but I told the truth, right? I was honorable about this. I owned it. I did all these things. I did what the church tells you to do. And I lost my kids, even though in hindsight, I can look back and say, I didn't deserve my kids. <laughs> you know, at that point in time, I can openly acknowledge that now. But in that moment, it was like, he's no better than me. And so that really, really spiraled me into a dark place. I was so mad at the Lord. I was so mad at the church. I was so mad at this, oh, have these great principles and whatever, because it's the people who lie that get what they want. And, and it just really kind of triggered me even further down the, the path that I had already been going. Um, I got involved in a relationship with somebody who was just completely unhealthy for me, completely unhealthy. I had a good job. I ended up going to work drunk because I drank with him you know, with this, you know, with this boyfriend before I went to work and I got fired. Not a big secret, you know, not a big shocker there, but you know, I, I mean, I, I think back at that and I just, I'm just embarrassed at this, you know, in my life now, like I'm like embarrassed. Like I literally went and tried to like meet with clients and I was wasted, you know, and I thought they couldn't tell. Um, you're just, just not in your right mind. Right. So that boyfriend ended up, we were living together and we were sharing an account and I came home from work one day and he was gone. And he was gone and the money, not that there was a ton of it, but the money in the account was gone. It was all gone. I had nothing. I, not a penny to my name, bills coming up, rent to pay. Didn't know where he went. Call my parents again. Just, just beside myself. Just, you know, this is rock bottom. I promise like this is rock bottom for me, mom and dad, you know, please help. And so my parents had moved to Utah. So I, at that point in time was in South Carolina. That's where my first husband and I had moved for his job and my parents had relocated to Utah and my parents dropped well, my dad dropped everything and he flew out to South Carolina and they took care of my bills and they paid off my car and they drove me to Utah with the requirement that I would stay at their house and I was going to get my life right. And so when I did that, I had to make what was the most painful decision of my entire life because my children were in South Carolina, but I, I couldn't be there. I had gotten fired from my job. I had nothing. And so I had to decide, you know, what was I going to do? And so again, going back to the wise counsel of my father, get yourself right. Be the kind of mom they deserve. Sorry. As I've gotten more sober, I've gotten more emotional, <laughs> but be the kind of mom that they deserve. And the Lord, will it'll all work out. It'll all work out like in the Lord's time. I didn't really have any faith in that, but I didn't have any choice. I didn't have any options. And so I I really didn't feel like I had a lot of options. There was a part of me that wanted to get sober and wanted to change my life, of course, but I still wasn't ready, you know, and until you're ready, like, it's just not going to happen. But I went through the motions. I went out to Utah. I, I moved into my parents' house. I was going to church. I was reading scriptures. I was actually getting up early in the morning and reading them with my mom. Um, for a little while, a few months that lasted, maybe less time than that. Maybe I'm giving myself more credit than I deserve there, but I was going through the motions. I was doing the right things, but I wasn't, my heart hadn't changed. Like I wasn't, I wasn't different. I was just placating them. You know, I was doing what I needed to do because of what they had sacrificed for me and what they had done. Um, inevitably, you know, I was waiting tables because that's how I was making money. I mean, that was obviously a job that I knew I could do that that's a whole different world and lifestyle when you wait tables because you're out at night and you're up and everybody goes out drinking afterwards, et cetera, et cetera. So inevitably over a few months time, you know, I start talking to people, I start becoming friends with them. And then the next thing I know, I, you know, I'm, I'm right back. I'm pretending that I'm not doing it. I'm trying to hide it from my family. Like, like I did when I was still in high school, even as an adult, but I was doing all those same things. And so I was in Salt Lake city um, after work one night and I, I honestly don't remember why it was offered or why it came to be, but I was with a group of people who got cocaine out, who 
put a line of cocaine on a table and offered it to me. And I had never done anything, you know, to that level or like, and I was already drinking and I, I was so, I was just so mad at the world. So I did it. I don't know like how to put into words the way that doing cocaine made me feel the first time I did it, but I felt like superwoman. Like I could do anything. I could fly. Like I, it was the most euphoric, incredible feeling. And I'm not here promoting drugs or drug use, but there is a reason people do them. I mean, there, there is a reason that addiction exists. There is a reason that we have things like this podcast and people who have to come back from it, because if you didn't enjoy it, if it wasn't something that brought you some kind of brief, momentary, worldly, earthly pleasure, you wouldn't do it. I mean, you I, just wouldn't. Mm -hmm. I was done for after I did cocaine. I mean, I just, everything about my life became centered and focused on cocaine. That is it. That is where, where I lived. It was the people I hung out with. It was the world I knew. It was who I was dating. I was dating a dealer. It was, I got to the point it, you know, when I was living in Utah, like between my parents' house in Salt Lake City, where I was waking up and putting a line out on the back seat of the toilet at my parents' home just to just get up, you know, just, just to get up in the day. I wasn't feeling high anymore. I just was feeling normal. Like I could function, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I did that within a year's time. I mean, some of the lasting effects, I mean, to this day, I have a deviated septum. To this day, right now, just talking, if if somebody handed me like a big hoop earring, I could put it through my nose and I can attach it on both sides. It will never heal. My cartilage is gone. Um, I just destroyed so many parts of my life in a year's time because of that drug. And with that, you know, of course, I did crystal meth as well. Um, I did smoke heroin. You know, just all the big names started coming out. Now, I never I never got into the intravenous use um, simply because I'm terrified of needles. <laughs> but mm -hmm. thankfully, I am terrified of needles. Um, I just don't like it. So um, but I but I really was just focused on on cocaine. And I was getting my young boys, you know, they were still young. I would get them on the summers and I would get them on spring breaks. And I can remember my parents having to do so much to take care of my kids um, because I loved them. I mean, I love my sons more than life itself. And I felt that when I would see them, but I wasn't capable of even taking care of myself anymore. I just wasn't because I couldn't do anything without cocaine. I like, I literally could not, you know, I've given a talk since this time um, in, in Sacrament and the way that I described it, you know, addiction is like prison. I mean, it is, it is, it is prison. It is. It, you, you're not yourself. And like, no matter how hard you want to be yourself, like you, you can't, like you really feel like that. And then of course, because you're there at that point in time in my life, I was thoroughly and completely convinced that there was nothing that I could do to ever mend the wounds, you know, repair the bridges that I'd burned to get myself right. Like I, I mean, because with a life of drug use comes a lot of really despicable choices and yeah. mm -hmm. things that you're just, you're so ashamed of and you can't believe you got to this point. Oh my gosh, I was never going to do that. Like I would never have gotten to that level. You're doing things that when you're 14 and 13 and 12, you think, Oh my gosh, how could anybody ever do that? It's so unfathomable until you are an addict, until you can't function without a drug and you you will literally do anything that you need to, to get it. And that's where I was. So my parents, you know, pivotal things that kind of happened during that time, my parents, you know, kicked me out of the house, rightfully so. You know, I, and I had brought cocaine home a couple of times. You know, you have those moments when you're, when you're high, where you feel like you just want to repent and everything you want it all because you knew, because, because you still know, because the testimony and, and, and the upbringing is still there. But like, I would, I, I remember one time coming in and waking up my dad and my brother at like three o'clock in the morning with a bag of cocaine, like, please take this for me, please help me. And then like thinking that I was going to give it all up. And then like two days later, you know, I was looking for bags. I, it's just, it's just a never ending cycle. But a lot of that is 
is the mental, like you can't fix it. Like you're just too far gone. And it genuinely, you really believe it. It's genuinely the way that you feel. I, you know, I got kicked out of my house. I was homeless. I was, you know, staying on friends' couches. I, you know, I got, oh man, just got to a point where I was watching people just do horrible things to themselves and to get drugs. And, and, and I just, I needed, I couldn't, I couldn't keep doing this to myself. Like I couldn't, but I didn't know how to stop. And what I did know was that if I stayed in Salt Lake, if I stayed in Utah, like with the friends that I had, I was not capable of leaving that group of friends by myself. Like I knew that because no matter how many times I had tried to, I found myself right back there. Ironically, in all of this time that was going on, the the same boyfriend that had caused me to have to leave my kids originally who had taken the money had reached out, you know, I mean, years prior, you know, just super apologetic, just kind of kept perfectly in touch and this and that. And so um, we had been chatting a little bit and he was basically saying, you know, I've got this great life. I've got this house. I've got all these things, you know, I, I just want to make things up to you. I miss you, et cetera, et cetera. And he was still located in South Carolina. He just, he started really working on me and trying to convince me to come, to come to South Carolina. I didn't really foresee him being like something for my future, but I saw him as a way to get out of the prison that I was in, like of just getting away from this group of people of not knowing and just kind of being able to maybe start fresh and to maybe get off of the drugs and to maybe do that. And so I decided to go. In that time, uh, my first ex-husband had relocated back to his parent, where his parents lived in Indiana. So my kids weren't in South Carolina anymore, but they were closer, right? They were closer, but really this was a way to try to get away from the drugs. So I went, um, I moved in to his house. You know, one thing that really vividly sticks out in my mind, I don't know if anyone's ever seen the movie Little Miss Sunshine, but it was like the first night that I was there, that movie was playing on a movie channel on TV. And in the very first scene, a man snorts a line of cocaine. And I physically got chills. Like I, I physically felt just from watching it on TV, a, a level of withdrawal and a level of craving and desire for something that that scared me. I mean, it, it scared me that something had that much control over me. I did not actually end up, you know, finding drugs or getting into drugs. But what I decided, you know, to do in my <laughs> really intelligent state of mind is to just supplement it with alcohol. Now I'm not doing narcotics. Now I'm not snorting lines of cocaine. But I was in a very, very unhealthy relationship with both the boyfriend and alcohol. Extreme levels, extreme levels, just constant drinking, lots of fighting, lots of domestic violence, lots of those types of issues going on to the, I mean, I remember spinning out on the highway one night at like three o'clock in the morning. And I mean, had anyone been around, had anyone seen me, not only could I have killed them and myself, but I mean, for sure I would have been in jail. I mean, just so many just horrible because I was trying to escape that house and that, you know, the situation, but I was wasted doing it. The number of times that I put my life and others, and that's the part that really hurts me the most, but others in, in jeopardy just by being on the roads and by doing the things that I was doing is, I mean, it's countless, it's countless over the years, but that relationship escalated to a point after just a few months of just constant drinking and fighting um, that I, I couldn't stay. And I knew that I put all of my things in the car when he was at work one day, um, he was a car salesman and I had called my parents and my parents had really good friends that were in Indiana, my kids were in Indiana with their dad and those friends who were lifelong friends of our family, but they had agreed to let me live in their basement to try to get my life together there, to try to do what I could do, but to be near my kids. I just drove from South Carolina up to Indiana, moved into their basement. And of course, you know, immediately reach out to my ex-husband to say, I am now here. So every other weekend, you know, like, let's get to some standard visitations. You know, I'm no longer living States away. And he was, adamant that that was not going to happen, that I was not going to have any more rights to my kids than what he deemed to give me that until I could get him in front of a judge or go to court, you know, and pay for it and all of these things and attorneys or whatever, like nothing was going to change. He doesn't care where I lived. That was just a really, really ugly situation. You know, I remember one time taking my son a birthday present to his dad's apartment and like, he wouldn't let me in. Like he wouldn't let me, he wouldn't let me give my son his birthday present because it wasn't in the court order, things like that. And I was so naive and I was so insecure and I was so um, vulnerable because of my choices and because of the life I was leading 
that I didn't really understand my rights. And I didn't really understand the things that I know now about a court system and kind of how that all works and what I could or couldn't have done. But if there was something he didn't want to take the kids to, he'd call me and like at a moment's notice, if you want to be here in an hour, you can have them for three hours and things like that. Right. So I had a really tumultuous relationship going on there with him and my kids. And in some ways, in a lot of ways, it made it harder. It, it made it harder because I was so close to them. But like, I couldn't see them like just to see them. Like I couldn't, like I didn't have that um, ability. And, and so again, to supplement the pain and the angst that I felt for that and the regret, I just drank. I just, I just, I drank more and I drank more. And again, same, same story. I was waiting tables, you know, those types of things. So I ended up in Indiana getting arrested twice. Um, I got arrested the first time for a public intoxication. Um, and the reason that it was a public intoxication was because I ran my car into the side of the road. Like it was just over on the shoulder of the road and I didn't know where my keys were. So I was just walking. So I wasn't actually in the car when they stopped me and arrested me, but I was definitely driving drunk. So I um, called my parents. My parents helped get me out of that situation. You know, obviously they're wonderful parents who really just didn't know what to do with me. They really just didn't. And then the second time I got arrested was for a DUI. In that instance, I actually drove my car off the side of a road into a ditch, completely totaled my car. Was I mean, I had to go to the hospital. I don't really remember the pain, like the injuries. They weren't serious because I was, you know, wasted. But it it could have really, really been bad for somebody else on the road. Um, and I remember um just things that kind of stick out in your mind. I'm sure anyone that's you know had similar experiences knows that there's just those moments that just stick out to you now that you. <laughs> It's now it's so far in the past, but I remember being in the hospital and I remember the officer that was there with me and it was a female officer and she was so mean. She was just really rude to me. And I just was like, so floored. And I remember asking her like, why are you being so mean? And she said, my family could have been out on the road tonight. In that moment, I think I said something like, but they weren't Yeah, something stupid because I was drunk, but when I think about it now and I think about the cause and effect of some of my choices and the way that other people react to you when you're making those choices, it's, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed that because she's right. She was a hundred percent right. Her family could have been out on that road. Anyone's family could have been, I didn't have any regard for those things. Right. So got arrested um, for the second time. And then I called my dad again and my dad hung up on me. That moment, it was a pivotal moment for me because it was the first time that they didn't help. It was the first time in all of my choices. I mean, I'm an adult. I'm in my 20s, 30, you know, what, late 20s at this point. Like, I'm, I am not a kid anymore. And they were still helping me because I didn't know how to help myself and because that's what they had felt like they should do. And he hung up and I was like in the drunk tank, like looking at people, like, he just hung up on me. Like, they're like, oh. Ooh, like, like, no, you know, but I'm like trying to like talk it out with like people in the cell because you guys don't understand, like they don't hang up on me, you know? And so it didn't change me overnight. It didn't, but it was a key moment for me into realizing there are consequences for these actions that I have to handle. I have to maintain. So I had to get myself out of jail that time. And it was not easy. Like I had to figure out a credit card and, you know, like I had to have credit. Like, I mean, it just, it wasn't easy when someone wasn't just doing it for you. And so it started me thinking differently. Again, it did not change me immediately, but it started me thinking differently. So I actually met my second ex-husband at DUI school. So I court ordered DUI school that you have to go to for this. You're doing community service. You're doing that. And we met there instantly clicked, got along. I mean, of course the relationship was made up a ton of just drinking, you know, I mean, we were both, um, we weren't driving, we were, you know, at, you know, at a home in our apartment, you know, like, or taking a, an Uber or whatever, constantly drunk. We were constantly same kind of, you know, back and forth, break up, go out, break up, go out, just unhealthy, super unhealthy. But we ended up getting married. I ended up marrying him because, you know, definitely thought that I loved him, definitely believed that that was, you know, where that relationship was at, you know, in the good moments, like this is a great bond. Go like a, a weekend of the marriage, we got into a huge fight. As I tell my story, I mean, again, I know that there's a lot of moments that I am not, I don't have time for, or I'm just kind of forgetting in the timeline. It was a jumbled 17 years, 20 years of addiction. 
there's a lot of things where I think people that were listening to the story, like if I could really go into the details and kind of go through some of the situations that I had created in my life, that would have been like, that should have been rock bottom. That should have been rock bottom. That should have been rock bottom. And thinking about like hearing the story with your parents, it's like, I, I was surprised how many times your dad came and it's like, I can, my dad was my rescuer like so many times and uh my husband's parents they were his rescuer so many times and as a parent what do you do like this is your child i don't know it's it's so hard to know what to even do but it does truly seem like once you get to the point where you kind of let them let them fall and let them experience the pain and consequences of their actions. That's when things can start to feel real. Would Would you agree with that? I agree 100%. I have had an experience with my oldest. Um, he's 22 now, but when he was 16 and he dabbled, I mean, just dipped his toes in a little bit of the water that, you know, mom had, had dipped in. And for the record, I mean, just I'll finish my kind of my saga here in a minute, but I'm very open with my children. My children are all very aware of my past. Um, my two oldest boys remember uh, my my drunkenness and things like that. They thankfully do not remember the summer that I was on cocaine and my parents were taking care of them. You know, they, they were too young for that. But they remember alcohol and things like that because I did that for years after I quit drugs. And so anyways, you know, so he dipped his toes in the water a little bit. He had a, a specific group of friends. He kind of started vaping. He really didn't go a lot further than that. And I found out about her really fast um, because he was, you know, his best friend was my niece and she was really worried about him and talked to his, her dad, who is my brother, who emailed you. So anyways, it got to me very, very quickly. And, you know, I just talked to my son and just, I didn't yell like, cause I mean, there were moments, I mean, I can tell you stories. I mean, and I don't blame them at all. Like where my parents, I mean, yeah, things got thrown at me. <laughs> like, I will never forget the day that my mom threw a brownie batter spatula and it me on the side it's just because in those moments you don't know what to do i i completely yeah. understand it i mean my 13 year old talks back and i feel like that sometimes so mm -hmm. i get it but so i didn't do any of that i just sat him down and i just said i understand that you want to make these choices and frankly i get it like i understand it but you're 16 you live in my house you're a junior in high school and you seem to believe that you're an adult and so as an adult here are the things that come along with being an adult. You have to pay your own bills. You have to do this and that. And so I gave him what his bills are, what his rent was, what his phone bill was, you know, his portion of electric utilities, et cetera. And simply said, these are, this is the dollar amount you now owe me because you're working at the end of each month for your monthly bills. If, and when you decide that you want to obey the rules of the house, you know, stay in line with the things that I'm teaching you, the bills will go away because you're my kid again. But right now you, you've become your own adult and that's how we're going to handle this. I love you. I'm here for you, etc. And he paid the bills for a month. And then the next month he had an entirely different group of friends and he went on to serve his full-time mission and he never, he never really struggled with that again. And so I do think that, I mean, absolutely coming out of darkness into light, there's a lot that you, that you bring with you from that. There's a lot that those experiences teach you. And, and, and not only about yourself, but about how to deal with other people. My parents had never had anything to possibly relate to me at all. They, they couldn't fathom what I was feeling or why I would be drawn to the things that I was doing. But I can. Like, I can. And it gives me a different perspective in parenting in those situations. I have a my 20-year-old right now who is just the greatest kid. I just love him dearly, but he has no interest in the church. He has no interest in the gospel. And I don't ask him about it. I just love him. You know, I, I just love him. And I appreciate everything that he brings to the table. He is so obedient. He is so kind and such a good brother. And I mean, when I say obedient, I mean, like, you know, if I ask him to do something, he does it. You know, when he's here, he's, he's present. He's with us. And when he's ready and on his own time, you know, he'll come back. So it just gives you a different perspective. Right. And so, yes, I agree. Making them be an adult and letting them kind of have those adult choices and consequences early, as early as possible, is, I think, critical in how it'll affect and impact their, their lives and where they'll go with it. So for my own, got married, lots of drunkenness, and it was very, I, I do actually think it was right before we got married, but regardless, um, we had uh, just an absolute 
banger of a night and we're just completely obliterated and we got into a fight that was apparently and i say apparently because i don't remember it what was apparently bad enough for my neighbors to call the police so we lived in townhomes and they called the police on us i woke up the next morning my husband boyfriend whatever he was at the time fiance he was not there he was in jail i was on the couch and i didn't have any recollection of what had gone on i i truly didn't i actually went to take a shower and i had bite marks i had visible bite marks all over my stomach like mm. my arms and that's why he went to jail that is why he went to jail but i didn't remember it i didn't remember it i'm sure i did my own things and you know was a part of the fight and whatever but i just I don't remember it. So the cops had come. The cops had taken pictures. They cut. They, they had seen it, and they had taken him away for you know, domestic violence, obviously. They had put a restraining order, said we couldn't see each other, and all of those things. But for whatever reason, for the 17 and a half plus, almost 20 years of my life before that moment, that, that incident, that seeing those bite marks and not remembering them happen because they were literally like visible, like human imprints. Oh my! That was just it. For, like, that was it. That was my rock bottom. And I made a decision then and there to get sober. I'll be completely honest. I did that whole thing where I said, I'm giving myself one more night, you know, and I, I marked it. It was the next night. He wasn't around, you know, that was my farewell to alcohol or whatever and i have never touched alcohol since like since that night since that moment it was just that turning point for me I, it was something about with everything else that had happened and everything that i had done to myself and all of these things it was these 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 visible bite marks on myself that i could not for the life and to this day i cannot remember it happening i can't that that was my rock bottom and so i decided to get sober i i drank it was either that night or the next night by myself. Um, and then that was it for me. And um, I was still smoking cigarettes. You know, I couldn't give up that vice. That that one took a year later. But I put down alcohol. I had quit doing drugs. Like I said, I had supplemented um, for the narcotics and stuff for a few years up until that point. And I have never relapsed. I have never touched it again. And I've never been tempted. So it's a very interesting way that it kind of happened. Now, Sobriety for me wasn't immediately gospel. I mean, it just wasn't. I was so far gone and felt like there had been so many truly despicable moments in my life and nights where I knew I needed to be sober because I needed to be sober because you can't have bite marks all over your body and not remember them and have that be a normal part of life. That just can't be your life. But I wasn't ready to come to the gospel because I didn't feel like I could. I didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel like I could be forgiven. I did not feel like I could be forgiven, right? So they weren't one and the same for me initially. They just weren't. The sobriety was something that had to happen so that I didn't die, you know? And I had two boys that I still loved dearly that I talked to every day and didn't live near them at the time. But so with sobriety and, and kind of with that, I got, I actually, we, you know, we ended up getting married. Um, the restraining order got, got lifted and he actually, you know, tried, got sober and I'm doing air quotes because he never truly got sober, but he was trying, you know, he was trying <laughs> sobriety. We ended up getting married and I, you know, for a period of time he was sober. I mean, he, he's, you know, to this day, I mean, obviously I have two kids with him to this day. He's, he tries, he, he really does try, you know, they're demons, addictions. It's a sickness. It really is. So yes, the restraining order was lifted. I was pregnant with my third son within a few weeks of being married. Like, I mean, immediately, um, which helped me obviously stay sober, right? I mean, that, that really helped me. As I was going through this pregnancy and as I was sober for the first time in a long time, and as I really truly like didn't want alcohol, like it was just, I didn't want it anymore. You know, I mean, finally, I didn't want it because I didn't like what it was doing to my life. You know, I just took baby steps. Like I started my brother, same brother, older brother was a bishop in, in Georgia. I was in Georgia at that time. Um, he was a bishop there. He was the bishop in the ward that I was in the boundaries of. And so I started attending church um, slowly. I didn't have, you know, I wasn't making very good money. I didn't have a ton of money or anything like that. And so, you know, I was like tithing, you know, what, you know, like 
barely scraping things together here. Like I'm not paying tithing. And so, you know, and I wasn't going to church necessarily every Sunday. It, it was baby steps, right? I mean, it, it did, it took some time, but as I got stronger with my sobriety and as my son started to kick in my stomach and I started to feel that, and I started to think about the fact that I was about to be responsible for this baby that wasn't living in Indiana, that wasn't, you know, far away, but that needed me and needed me to be better. It made me want to be better. And so I, you know, I, the church thing started to come more naturally. I paid tithing for the first time. And as I did that, I didn't have like this huge aha moment, like all of a sudden, like this miraculous amount of money, like at the bottom, you know, was immediately where I needed to be when I needed it to be there. But I was able to like save like 50 bucks, you know, for the first time. And I couldn't even tell you how many years as I'm paying money out that I wasn't paying out before. Right. And it was those incredible kind of realizations that, you know, I, I, it was small and simple things that really kind of led me to the gospel and to, to my testimony again. <laughs> and I've given a talk at my last word uh, about the word of wisdom. That was the subject that I was given. So you can imagine that was a pretty, I've been told it was a pretty impactful talk, but you know, small and simple things is really the way that I would describe it. So it wasn't an overnight situation. It took you, you know, it took a long time, but eventually my desire to have the gospel and to have the spirit and to have the Holy ghost back in my life, because I, I had been mad for a long, long time. Eventually that became a priority for me, you know? Um, and I started talking to my Bishop who happened to be my brother, which is a pretty neat experience now, you know, as adults. And I started going through a repentance process that was frankly a little embarrassing because I didn't know exactly what all I had to reveal. And it was my brother. But at the same time, like, I didn't want to leave anything out because I didn't want to, like, if I'm going to do it, like, I'm going to do it. All in. We're We're all in. we're We're telling stories and glossing over things and trying to, like, skirt around things that, you know, you hear about in movies and things like that, you know, and my brother's listening to me. And I, I'll never forget when I got refellowshipped into the church. And I guess I did forget that part. I had been disfellowshipped many, many years ago in, in absentee. I wasn't there. My dad had told them what I was doing and they disfellowshipped me. But when I got refellowshipped into the church, the spirit that I felt, it was in my brother's office as a bishop. And like, he was sobbing, you know, and I was sobbing. And when I walked out of that office, I have never felt so light. I've never felt so good just good you know just peaceful and good and it was a physical feeling and that's the best way i can describe it and when this came to be and my brother told me about your podcast and reached out it was because you know he and i started recently having a a pretty serious discussion he was going to speak in church and he started asking me some questions about my past and some of those things and about um what the atonement means to me and how and why and you know how it's impacted my life and you know for me there's a lot of noise in the world right now and there's a lot of noise in the gospel and there's a lot of people that i know personally that are part of my family my own son you know not he's not like bad at all i'm just 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 there's no testament right now you know but just a lot of people that are making choices or doing things that aren't in line with the gospel that are way more part of kind of the, the society that we live in and, and this woke, you know, mentality and things like that, and that have made them rebel and, and be anti the church people whose testimonies were once so strong. And for me, when you hear about all these things, and there's so many ways that you can take any situation, you can interpret a situation, you can read into a, a guideline or um, a talk any way you want to. Any way you choose, whatever you're trying to get out of it is what you're going to get out of it. It is so simple for me because I have felt, like I have felt the atonement take a burden off of my shoulders and literally remove it. It is a weight I didn't even realize I had been carrying. It was a freedom and, and a light in my life that I just had lived so long without. And when you, when you have a moment like that, when you have an experience, when you have walked in darkness and then you come into the light, there is no going back. 
And sometimes you have to take a really hard, long road to get to that point. And it was a really long, really sordid road for me to get to that point. But that's what I was, you know, kind of conveying to my brother when he said, you know, I've got to reach out. You've got to tell your story is it is that simple for me. There is a thousand things I could do better and could do differently. And I lose my cool with my kids sometimes. And I don't read my scriptures every day. And sometimes when I say my prayers, I'm laying down because kneeling just seems hard in that moment. You know, I, I can pick myself apart when it comes to what kind of LDS person I am or what kind of, you know, Latter-day Saint I, I am. But at its core, in my heart, I am changed. I am different. Mm-hmm. I am different because of the atonement of Christ. And because I have felt that as an adult, not as an eight-year-old, I'm not undermining baptism whatsoever. It's amazing. I don't remember how I felt coming out of that water. I don't. But I remember how I felt being re-fellowshipped into the church. I remember how I felt the first time that I stood in the celestial room in the temple. I remember how I felt. And when you can vividly remember that, and when you know that the Savior is the only reason that you have hope in your life and that you are where you are, it's just, to me, it's just easy, you know? It's just Mm. easy. Yes. I, I, I know that there's no recovery from addiction. I know that they say that, but I, I don't know that I agree with that. Because- I, uh, oh my gosh. I am on the same page as you. Thank 100%, you. hundred percent. Like anybody in anybody says, you know, you're, you're never fully recovered, but through the savior, we can be new people as if it never even happened. And yeah. sorry. And to like- interrupt. No, there's nothing, there's no comprehension of how I would, like, I would never make those choices again. I am changed. I am, I am changed. I am new, you know, and, and it's only because of the atonement and it's only because of the savior. And had that not happened and had I, I would not be here on this earth right now if I hadn't been able to be clean because that weight becomes so heavy. And it just, it's, it's just wearing you down and wearing you down to where you're making choices to get rid of the weight that ultimately will lead to your mortal death. I mean, they just will. That's exactly what we see with overdoses and all of those things. All addicts are chasing. It's a catch 22. You're you're trying to escape the demons and the evil that you feel and that are filling your mind and your heart and all of that. So you're looking for the substances to get rid of the, you know, the feeling and the escape. And you're just, it just becomes worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And without the savior, I I don't think I, I know that I wouldn't be here, but also without my family, without prayer, without temples, without temple rolls for 17 years and prayers every night without love. When I got sober, just to kind of close the loop on my on my you know story, I still didn't have my kids full time. I started working, and I was with the company that I just got laid off from um, for 15 years, and so it was a progression up from yeah from mid level management to to the executive level to where my life now. I mean, looking around, just people who knew me homeless and <laughs> as a cocaine addict i mean you know i have a we have a pool in our backyard my kids wanted that so you know we did that. I mean, we we're good and it's 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 a real testament to what you can do with a lot of hard work and and just you know kind of staying sober and don't get me wrong i i've worked really really hard you know to to overcome and and to make up for i i feel like i have to make up for some of the things you know especially with my older kids but i did try to get my kids again in court and I didn't win. I had been sober for about five years at that time. And my ex-husband was still doing drugs and doing all these things. And I found out um, that he had gotten his second DUI. So this is my first ex-husband that had my, my two older boys. So I took him back to court and I paid for my own attorney this time and was really optimistic that I was going to get my kids. And I didn't because they were getting good grades in school. They had, you know, his parents were helping quite a bit. He had good family support and they seemed stable. And so it takes a lot to uproot kids for the briefest moment. If there was going to be a time that I was going to relapse or that something was going to set me back, it was going to be that. Right. And I remember again, calling my dad, my mom and and just getting the whole, it's the Lord's time, Missy. It's the Lord's time. (laughs) 
it was so hard for all of us to comprehend and to see, even right now with the job. I've never in my adult life been out of work for a month, right? Um, and, you know, obviously we're okay and there was severance and all those things, but it's still hard to comprehend sometimes why it all happens and the way it happens and whatever. Mm-hmm. But with that, a couple years later, I was, I had moved out to Utah. I had relocated to Utah, which is where I currently live out here. My family, most of my family is out here and I was still getting my kids every summer. And I called him every day. We talked every day. And my oldest son, who was 15, he had just turned 15. He was out here for the summer. And he said, mom, if I was to go to high school out here, what would the high school, where would it be? Take me to it. Yeah okay <laughs> like how fast can i drive my car there you know um and i showed him and we started talking and he said you know brendan and i like my my you know his brother we you know we found drugs in dad's house again i don't really like being there i don't like the way i feel there i really like the way that i feel when i'm here what what can we do how can how can we change this and so on his own um he decided that he wanted to live with me and so that's what we did. We, I called his dad and just said, this is going to go two ways, you know, one of two ways. You're going to sign them over to me. They're going to live here. I'm not asking for a dime from you. I will take care of them. Everyone's going to be fine. They can come visit you whenever you want, et cetera, like open access. They want to live here or we'll go to court again. And this time the boys have things to say, right? This time they're ready to talk and they want to. And so he actually heard it. Both of my sons, um, I, my oldest was the first one to say it, but both of my sons told him on the phone that they didn't want to live with him anymore. And so it ended up, he didn't want to fight it because there would have been no point. He's a business owner. He didn't want some of that getting out. And so we signed a document. We did it all through one attorney electronically. And then I got sole custody of my two oldest boys, which was a literal dream come true, but it happened on his time. My oldest son had the courage and the strength, but he also just saw the difference in his dad's life and my life. And I just needed to live that. Yeah. And and the feeling and the spirit. And he's such a special, special guy. And like I said, he ended up serving a full-time mission um, and just got married in the temple, you know, this past year. And I don't think that it would be the way that it was if it didn't happen how it happened and when i look back now i'm so grateful and i'm so appreciative for how they came to be with me and no i didn't have their whole upbringing like i wanted to and yes i lost eight years you know because of my choices not because of anyone else but because of my choices but when they came to me and the bond that we have and the spirit that they have and even my my son who doesn't really care about going to church he stays away from all substances he doesn't do anything because he's seen it like he, he just, he's seen it and he doesn't want to. And again, they both chose to be baptized. Um, as soon as they moved out here, they both chose to be baptized. Um, my dad got to do that. It's just, we've had so many neat experiences that have happened since, since that and the sobriety. And when you look at it now, you know, you can see it all lay out and the Lord's plan was the better plan, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, it was, it was the yeah. better plan, but in that moment and in those times, it's so hard to see that something that's been a struggle for me, even, you know, with the, with the job situation. And my, my 10 year old just said a prayer the other night and just said, I know my mommy's going to get a job. You know, I know. And I've been feeling a lot of anxiety because I'm a single mom and I, we have a certain lifestyle that we've grown accustomed to that, you know, I need to be able to, to support and, and maintain. And I woke up today. I was just telling my, my family today, I just, I feel so at peace because I've seen this before in different circumstances in different, you know, different ways in my life. And it is on the Lord's time. There is a plan. We're making the right choices. Right. You know, um, I I've talked to my, you know, paying tithing, doing those things. And so I know it will work out. And so I have to just take a, a a step back sometimes and think about my life and how many ways and times the Lord has shown me when he's ready, things are going to happen, right? Like things are going to happen. Um, but I'm grateful. I'm so grateful to like know and have experienced it. So it's like, I don't have to go like on someone else's faith this time, right? Like I know it. I just have to be reminded of it, you know, yeah. just because of the way that, you know, my, my life has gone and, and unfolded. And so, you know, obviously we're in a great place now, you know, I, kids are, you know, we're, we're all doing really well. And the gospel is just a fundamental part of who we are. Like, it's not even something for me that I just like, that I think about separately. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. It's completely makes sense. It is yeah. part of who you are. Right. It just is. Yeah. 
it just is this it just is this is this is it this is who we are this is what we do this is how we live and like i said i think all of us could pick ourselves apart a thousand times over and i have 10 million things i could do better yep. personally professionally mentally emotionally me too me too <laughs> and i think everybody can agree with that and you don't have to be perfect to be living the gospel from your heart I think the profound, I guess, thought that I have a lot, you know, I think about it too often is it doesn't matter how far on the path you are. It's just the direction that you're going. Like I said, I mean, it's just very simple. The gospel is very simple. When I was younger, I remember watching a video. I mean, it was one of those, you know, kind of cheesier church movies from back in the day. But, you know, it was a group of high school kids. And it was, you know, this one guy was commenting to the girl about how her religion is so restrictive. It's so restricting. And it's, you know, oh, my gosh, how can you live like that? You know, you have so many rules. And I agree. Back when I saw it as like a youth, I was like, oh, my gosh, they sure do. You know, and now that, you know, you've gone through or I've gone through where true restrictions and yeah. prison and lack of choice totally literal lack of choice now that i've done that the liberating thing is the church the the, the freedom is the gospel it is it just yeah. is i agree so much and i i have said something very similar many times it true freedom is living the gospel 100 mm-hmm. percent yeah. Yeah. It's the lightest, best feeling that I've ever had. And it doesn't make me perfect. Doesn't even make me close to perfect. Not even close. But you know what? I try. I really, I really, I really do try every day to just be the kind of person that like, when I look at my savior, and when I talk to him again, where I just, I, I'm trying to do right. I'm trying to be good, you know? Yep. So yeah, that's that's my story. That's 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 Love it. where I was and where I'm at. So amazing. I what a powerful testimony. I am so happy that you came on the podcast and I'm so happy to just hear I love stories of addiction recovery because obviously like I connect with my own story, but I love hearing somebody's change of heart and how somebody can completely change fully a hundred percent. And I don't know, your story is so beautiful. And so many things you said just really resonate with me. And I've seen it in my life and I've seen it in my husband's life, how it's one thing to get sober, but it's another thing to have your whole life completely transformed as if that was another person in, in another life, you know? It really feels like that, doesn't it? I mean, it really, That's- really does. You know, we all have our own struggles and, you know, I am a single parent and, and those right. things. And, you know, those are some of the questions my brother was asking me when we were having that conversation about his talk is just, you know, how do you deal with it? You know, like how I don't deal with it. I've been promised an eternal companion that I'll work in a temple with. I don't deal with anything. I'm just living I'm just living the way that I need to, to get the blessings that I've been promised. And I know that they come and I know that they come to take that one step further, you know, talking to my parents as we, you know, as I've been adults and obviously again, my stories, I mean, not only is my story evident, but I was that person who would, I was, you know, at a certain point when my parents just kind of accepted like who I was, I was calling them drunk just being hilarious you know what i mean like thinking i was just like the funniest like my sisters I mean, i've talked to all my family just completely you know schnockered and we joke about it now right mm-hmm. but i've asked my parents how you know how did you get through it like you know i i know what i did to you you know like <laughs> i feel what i did to them and how that must have been for them and you know my mom said at a certain point you know we just had to think about what we've been promised and, 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 and we just had to take a step back and we just had to keep living our life the way that we knew we were supposed to live our life because we were promised that our kids would be, big, you know, and it's all of it. It's all full circle, right? It takes all of us just accepting and, and kind of having that peace of knowing that, you know, you just need to be, you just need to be and to live and to just keep going forward on the path. And some days you might take three huge steps and some days it might literally be a shuffle, but just keep moving. We're all going to have the blessings that were promised that he doesn't. I love us. We fail. I love that he so does much. Not. 
Missy, you are amazing. I am so grateful that I had the opportunity to meet with you tonight and have you on the podcast. Is there any final thoughts before we wrap up? You know, before I came on here, I, you know, I've been told by people who know my story that it's impactful and, and, and that, you know, there's someone that needs to hear it. I said a prayer before I came on here that whatever was supposed to come out of my mouth and whoever was supposed to hear it, that they could. And I just, I really do hope that in some way, shape or form that this helped someone somewhere. If it did, then I, I, I just feel amazing. And I appreciate you so much having me on here. Well, I know that it made a difference for me. So I know that so many people will be um, impacted by your story. So thank you so much, Missy. So great thank you. Me. Okay. Appreciate it. Hey guys, first off, I want to give you a heartfelt thank you to all of you that support the podcast. We wouldn't be able to get this message out without all of your help, so thank you so much. I've had a few questions come in from people that aren't on social media, so I just wanted to let you guys know that we do have a website. It's www.comebackpodcast.org. You can find all of our episodes here. Um, There's a list of our book club selections, and you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks again. We love you guys so much.